Hello, and welcome back to Building Our Future. I'm Bert Broadhead, and this is the podcast where we meet the people shaping the way we design, construct, and utilize our built environment. I've always loved looking at the past to gain a better understanding of how things are today. So it's a pleasure to be able to meet the author of a new book detailing the evolution of the modern European real estate industry. I'd like to understand what led to the creation of the pan-European market as we know now, how it all came crashing down in 2008, and what's next. To make things better, we'll also get to talk about one of the podcast partnership programs, what it's all about, and how to get involved. I hope you enjoy it, and as ever, do feel free to get in touch with any feedback, either via the website, buildingourfuture.net, or via Twitter, where my handle is at building under slash R. My guest today is Andrea Carpenter, a communications consultant in the property industry, founder and director of this podcast partner, the nonprofit Women Talk Real Estate, and author of a new book, High Rise and Fool, The Making of the Modern Real Estate Industry. Andrea began her career as a journalist at Property Week before moving on to be editor of Europropty. Following this, she worked for various institutes, including ULI, the Urban Land Institute, INREV, and ANREV in Hong Kong. She most recently worked as Head of Marketing and Communications EMEA at CBRE Global Investors. Hi, Andrea, and a very warm welcome to Building Your Future. Thank you very much for having me. So, probably as a result of having studied history at university, I've always loved understanding the evolution of businesses within the real estate industry. So I was really excited to hear about your forthcoming publication, High Rise and Fool. Clearly, you've enjoyed an amazingly varied career in real estate. So I'm really fascinated to understand what drove you to write this book. I think it was the fact that I had had that varied career, as you say, starting in as a journalist and then seeing the industry from within nonprofits, you know, which gives you a wide reach and a wide network. And then also um, going on to work within CBRE Global Investors, which was the first time I'd actually seen the industry from inside a, a real estate company. And I think also just the timing. I was, you know, spot on really with my timing. I started as editor of Euro Property in October 98, and the Euro arrived that next January. So in terms of the opening up of the markets and that European story, I feel I was almost there from the beginning. I think the arrival of the American capital a few years before started that. So I have just seen a great story and a great time in our industry, which I think it would have been a shame not to capture in some way, particularly as the the final result really was the crash in terms of the end of that cycle. Is your book's really covering what you see as the start of the evolution, i.e. the formation of the euro through to the, through to the crash? Yeah, I think it's, to me it starts mid-90s, the period. Well, that's when I start, which is mid-90s, when American capital started to arrive, which was a real disruptor, if you want to use that modern term, for 25 years ago in the industry. And then um, going through into the opening up of what was um, a very domestic local market in each country, the arrival of the euro and the arrival of more international capital opened up those markets. So it was a very unique time, a very unique time of change, a step change in terms of where the industry had been and where it is today. If you work in the in- coming into the industry today, you wouldn't have recognized it from 20 years ago. The only thing I've read which sounds kind of broadly similar was 
Peter Bill's Planet Property, which was very much UK focused. Mm. And one of the things I really enjoyed from that is the realization that most of what we consider to now be institutional names in UK real estate have their genesis in extreme entrepreneurialism and a world dominated by big real estate personalities. From a European perspective, Mm. the big entrepreneurs sometimes seem a little bit less pronounced. Where do you see the formation of modern European real estate market coming from and what were the driving forces for this happening yeah uh, peter bill was my boss uh, when i was at Euro property actually actually i started my career with peter's uh, i have to thank for my career in journalism because he took me on as a work experience student when i was at building magazine and and then gave me my job at Euro property so um it's nice to follow in his footsteps in terms of writing about it. and my book is about the european story his is very much about the uk so i think um where i think it comes from is the u.s capital arriving you know, again, it was the timing of the euro, but the US capital was a very different type of capital that was arriving suddenly on European shores. In the US, there'd been a a big crash, there'd been a saving and loans crisis with lots of bad debt in the market. And because of the scale of that, it introduced investment banks into this world of property where they hadn't really invested in before. So they put together opportunity funds, as we now call them, or private equity funds, started buying up bad debt, making a lot of money from investing in that. And then they saw, because of the crash that Europe had had at the beginning of the late late 80s, early 90s, they could do the same thing in France. So they suddenly arrived with sort of greater ambitions for the property industry than anyone had ever had. They had a lot of capital. They had a lot of ambitions. They thought about property in a much more macroeconomic way. They weren't buying a kind of just a building on a street. They were buying into an idea that, you know, that France, you know, the cycle in France would very much revive. So if they got in cheap, they would make a lot of money. So that was very disruptive and bought a very organised kind of way to invest that was higher returns, that was looking for higher returns. So the status quo that they interrupted was, was really just what, isolated markets across Europe just acting in individually to, to other markets? Yeah, this was sort of pre-Euro. Yeah. So France itself was a very local institutional market, used to sort of returns on equity of 7%. They were all pretty dormant because they were in crisis mode. And that would have usually just played out. You know, that would have usually gone on until the economy picked up again. But instead, this American capital arrived, just completely kind of cut through all that, bought everything cheap, found the floor in the market, and, that, and, and the France revived from that, rather than the more natural process that they used to. And, and was that really the first instance of big-scale cross-border investment within Europe? Yes, it was one of them. It was the first from outside Europe that came on such an organised scale. We, Europe had seen Swedish investments before that they came in, got quite burned and left. Japanese were the same. But the US came in, they were very organised and very persistent because it was working for them. They got the timing right. But at a similar time, the German open-ended funds were also, they bought into the European story much quicker. They were in to um, the UK in the early 90s, making very good buys. They bought the Lloyds building, I think, in 95. Um, And so they, too, were a very kind of early organised wave of capital that were, I suppose, they were the homegrown European investors, the homegrown dominant force at the time as well. And and the common thread amongst us is your... American capital, presumably with similar traits to what we, what we associate them with now, i.e. Uh, big macro plays, use of debt, and targeting reasonably high returns. Yes, yeah, so that arrived, and 
it was very influential. It was a time when people were looking to the fund model. And again, in the US, quite quickly after the opportunity funds, there was this natural cycle of what's next. Okay, it's what we now refer to as value-add funds. So value-add funds starting to, started to arrive at the point where institutional investors were starting to go indirect. So they were starting to put their money into funds. So quite quickly, the origin of, of that market here were core funds by players like ING, um, what was AEW Europe in the end, um, but kind of CDC Ixis at the time, and Henderson, for, which is now TH Real Estate. Yep. So all those names you know now started that fund management industry, and they started take, as quite core players. But then I think the market was very much influenced by this natural kind of inclination to go up the risk curve. And at the same time, the banks were growing as well, so there was available capital. So the Germans are doing open ends, the Americans are doing closed ends, and then you've got these value-add core funds, which are presumably a mixture a mixture of the two. Mostly closed ends end, at the time, yes. And, and did this have a kind of immediate impact on properties? So the fact that the capital world's suddenly been opened up, are we suddenly getting kind of new types of developments, uh, new ideas coming into the actual physical real estate? Into the physical real estate, I... I think there was, and that's something, and one area that I couldn't get everything into my book. There was so much went on, but I think the in, the industry was influencing in terms of factory outlet formats, retail warehousing formats. There was some early kind of investments into car parking, storage, senior housing. All these things were institutional asset classes in the states started to come over quite early. But in a way, that wave is something that we're really seeing much more in a much more focused way now. So the, the innovation wasn't necessarily in the properties themselves. So where, no. where, where were we really seeing innovation yeah. if it existed at all? I like that we call it innovation because innovation was suddenly having figures about the market. Innovation right. was being able to capture the size of the market. You know, you look at early work by DTZ and Helium Baker, as it was now part of Cushman and Wakefield, and DTZ is now part of Cushman and Wakefield. So they were doing money into Property UK, then money into the UK. You've got JLL and CBRE suddenly doing cross-border analysis of where money is flowing to and from. And that was, that was innovative. And because of the euro, that also, the market also opened up. There was innovation in how to legally do a cross-border deal, how to right. tax-wise treat a cross-border deal. So that was very innovative and really opened up the markets. And the same with fund structures, for example, taking the FCP structure from Luxembourg and using that as the basis of one of the funds. So the innovation wasn't what we see today, but these were things that really opened up the market. Right. And and actually, if if we think about the fund structures in particular, like fine, things have adapted to changing laws and tax regulations, but actually we fundamentally still got the same fund vehicle structures, closed-ended, open-ended, etc. Yeah, I think, yeah, the limited partnership and the... Well, the FCP particularly because it it allowed you to put lots of money from different na- nation, nation states into one, so you could pull together international money, and that was very important. And Prologis, the Prologis Fund was actually one of the first examples of that we saw. That was a, a sort of a stepping stone for others to use that vehicle and start to look at things like um, retail warehousing. Prodera was also one of the first there. And again, because that Prologis was an American fund, that had the influence of bringing in performance fees, had the influence of using slightly more debt than other funds had done before. So again, all these things started to build up in a time where property was prospering as well. 
you've mentioned the the emergence of of data and research. You know, I, I started in the industry uh, slightly before the crash, and it, it was there, but at a you know compared to what we have now, which still isn't perfect, it was pretty prehistoric, really. Mm. So, do you think there was a danger that that people were kind of kidding themselves that actually their data driven approach was um, more founded than it than it actually was? I think they had better data, but they were using it sometimes to justify the deal rather than vice versa. You know, it was kind of, here's the deal we want to do. Can we look at, see how we can make this work in terms of the research that's around? I think you see hugely sophisticated research now and a lot more actually macro-driven research. There it was kind of quite ground up, you know, count the buildings, count the rents, count the the capital flows. Now you see that overlaid with a lot more, I think, macroeconomic work as well. Pre-crash, you'd have this previous decade where property had gone from being held presumably either privately or within nationally domiciled pension funds, Mm -hmm. etc., to suddenly this cross- or pan-European market opening up and presumably there being, therefore, some systemic risk across the whole whole market. Mm -hmm. What else were the kind of key features in the lead up to the crash if you if you can look back in retrospect and go yeah this is this is basically what it looked like i think think one thing that was interesting is there was um a lot more focus on property the cash flow from property that's another thing the americans brought they they really analyzed capital on property on cash flow and i say that now as though it's a new thing of course it's what everyone does now but it was a really a new thing so they themselves were less focused on the property in hand. They would buy major, major portfolios, you know, like a, I think a three billion portfolio from France Telecom, which was a lot of offices, but also a lot of switching stations, because it didn't matter to them that they were, it was a switching station. It mattered to them that it had 15 years of income that they could then securitize or guarantee on, and they would sell on. So they were, there was definitely something that flowed through the industry where there was became less of a focus on the bricks and mortar. And again, I I think what did that for people who were doing more value-add or core investing was the fact that debt was available. So suddenly you had a fund and you could drive your returns through debt and the industry started to slightly take its eye off the ball at what it was good at, which was working assets and driving the return through the property. And you you really saw that ping back like a really strong bit of elastic when the the crash came. It's not to say there weren't people doing great asset management at the time, but, you know, it was also as easy to drive it through through debt. Right. And, you know, if we we look at some of the vintages of funds which really suffered in uh, in 08 or post-08, you know, a lot of them were uh, principal funds of, of investment banks, and we were in a, an era of ultra-high leverage with people doing all sorts of um, yeah. things in the capital stack. And that sat within a broader movement of the industry becoming more integrated in the financial system. The fact that another innovation I didn't mention was um, commercial mortgage-backed securities. You know, the right. fact that this really conduit lending where... You know, it was just like a regular loan if you were borrowing it, but behind the scenes, the person that lent you the money was selling bonds into the capital markets, so therefore offlaying their risk and then relending the money they got back. Suddenly, there was this ability for banks to send the risk out into the capital markets so they could continue to lend. So 
suddenly there was this a lot more risk. You know, we talk about the wall of capital. You would yeah. have heard the wall of capital. The wall of capital was a wall of debt. You know, there was a lot of equity there, but it was the ability to borrow so much from willing banks who were then securitizing it and not having the risk on their books so much was one problem. And if you, you know, I'm not going to analyze the, the, the Lehman's crash for you, but, you know, a lot of that around was... Um, was the fact that there was a, a credit crunch and the fact that the um, CMBS markets, they were, the risk was all, di- people were carrying risk on their books, which they'd bought and sold from other people. So suddenly, way over in the property industry, where we went to be buying and selling buildings, our risk was actually floating around out in the markets as well. What was going on with the um, European, what we now know as REITs, or I suppose what back then were... were property companies the the listed the listed sector it's a really interesting you go back and you look at the listed markets in the late 90s and they were quite sort of almost family style kind of old school companies led by strong leaders who had listed because it was a good way of finding finance in those days and again the, the u.s was very influential because reits in the u.s were big business they were already huge companies so American advisors came over looking to try and recreate that here. So, and they did, and they managed to kind of grow many of the listed companies. The listed companies became much more sophisticated, but at the same time, quite often, the listed companies would be trading at a discount to net asset value because they were regular property companies and didn't have the tax advantages of REITs. So you'd be seeing companies t- trading at 30% discount to net asset value. The U.S. investors would also come and buy them. So at one time, we were try- they were trying to grow the market because it should have been a good exit for many of the big investments that they were doing. But at the same time, it was, a ca- it was getting consolidating and changing. And that's radically different now. I mean, the companies in the... You know, the companies have grown to such scale now in that industry. They're still in the REITs industry. They still don't compare to maybe other parts of the market. But if you look at British land and land securities now, you know, they're some of the best governance and the sort of the best performing companies. Yeah. The new trend now is you know, global REITs rather than national REITs, so Unibuy, Westfield, etc. Yeah, Unibuy is such an interesting company through the book. I mean, Unibuy was a small, a small kind of listed company that bought, built Cur de France and then kind of focused on, under the leadership of Leon, Leon Bressler at the time, focused on really growing and consolidating the market with uh, retail schemes and big office schemes, and grew incredibly. And it, so it's interesting to see that 25 years ago, it's now come to this, you know, this amazing dominant retail company. It bought Rodamco in the, I think, the early 2000s, and now going on to buy Westfield. So that's really one of the interesting companies that flows right through the book. So if we go back to just, just before 2008, mm. we've, we have effectively a very highly leveraged debt-fueled market, arguably using patchy data to create illusions of institutionalization that mm. allows them to become part of a mainstream financial system. It's not probably that surprising in retrospect that this came uh, crashing down. There was a hopefulness in the industry that the industry had changed. The industry always wanted to be have the same respect as equities and bonds. So when it started to innovate through the things I talked about, like better data, new financial products like funds. I mean, funds brought in a huge wave of capital that had never looked at real estate before. And, you know, everything was going really well. They were now, banks were growing their books and that you could lend more easily. It all felt like it fit together. It all felt like this was how the industry was maturing. So 
It was the fact that we didn't have enough understanding of what happened the other side when you've taken on this, all this debt and the fact that we were integrated in the markets because a lot of the risk was being sold. You know, a lot of the CMBS risk was contributing to those problems in the wider market as well. So what we used to hold dear as kind of our ability to be a bit different to bonds and equities when the crash came, because we were integrated into the financial markets more, we fell at the same time. We had the same speed of crash that we never used to have. So we're now 10 years on, mm. uh, and to rehash a quote from poor old Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. What do you think the retrospective lessons are that we can, we can learn from pre-08? I think we can think about the property. I think one thing that we did when we, you know, as that kind of cycle continued was, as I said, you forgot about the bricks and mortar, I'm not very up to speed what's happening in prop tech, but I think we make sure when we look at things like, you know, how we're going to use prop tech in our industry that we're not going to put the put that to one side and forget about the property, the bricks and mortar that we're doing that we're doing that very good at. I think another thing would be complexity. I think we sometimes didn't understand, you know. The people who understood CMBS were few and far between, and I used to write about it all the time. I didn't really understand it. You know, I'm not saying I would have figured out that it would have, you know, be part of bringing a whole financial system down if I'd looked at it more closely. But, you know, it was problematic that we were dealing with things that everyone was too afraid to say, do we really understand how that works? Do we really understand the the consequences of that? Um, There was was one more I I was thinking about that was in my head as well. Yeah, I think also understanding the drivers behind some of the business models. I think we funds was a really exciting, innovative part of the market, but it you know every fund meant new income for the fund manager. So the thing to do was get the money in, get the cash out into property, and raise a new fund because that was more fees. And I'm not naive to think that a fund manager doesn't can't make money, but sometimes thinking about the balance of What's driving you forward in terms of putting together those funds? What's dri- you know, and is it a healthy balance between making a profit and, you know, investing on behalf of your clients? So sometimes trying to understand what drives those business models, I think, is worth looking at in the industry. My experience would, from that would be that there is now far greater understanding from both investors and fund managers of the importance of alignment and yes. various mechanisms to ensure that it, that it mm. does exist. And I think also the nature of the people in the industry have changed. These were property people learning finance. And now if you're coming into the industry, you're going to be much more well-versed in finance and more likely to be really good at finance. Probably need, prop te- probably need property technology skills as well now. But you're, you know, you're, you've definitely got, we've got a much better skill set than we maybe started with. People were learning on the job about finance, whereas now you come into it you know, much, you know, much better advantage. In, in the context of what we just talked about mm. with funds, how do you think that's, that has affected the, the actual development of a built environment, so the way that cities have actually evolved? Do you think, do you think that does have a negative impact or could have a positive impact if you were to... I think it was probably a period that I wouldn't wholly call it a negative impact, but I think there was a short-termism around investment. Obviously, short, closed-ended funds were seven to ten years overall investment, so you're probably holding the asset for maybe six. So there was always a view of you know, recycling and turning it over. Obviously, you'd add value to it and you'd want to sell it on, 
But I think when those funds came to an end, they realized there were assets in there that they wanted to keep. And in some, ca- some occasions, they couldn't afford to keep yep. because of the crisis. So I think it taught in institutional investors who'd often invested directly and had switched to in- indirectly, then probably switched back to direct because they realized they didn't want to be kept to a timetable of when they had to sell a building. So you know, their long-term mi- mindset came back more properly and I think if you look at the work that fund managers often do with investors now, it's more about long-term joint ventures or, they're open, or they have these evergreen or open-ended funds which make sure that, you know, that they can keep the assets and you don't have to sell them. There are closed-ended funds, but they're for sort of rare business opportunities that are only the window's only going to be two years or something. Yeah, I think, I think what, what interests me there is mm. there's, there's always the trouble with closed-ended funds of being potentially a, a forced seller somewhere down the line. And you know, your business plan is ultimately dictated by your fund structure rather than by the, the asset, which is never mm. ideal. Conversely, it's something the industry, I think, needs to think about is a lot of long-term, longer-term holders reflectively paid on an assets under management basis rather than an asset performance basis. The challenge there being as space as a service emerges and the need becomes to effectively manage properties more more on an operational basis and really get involved with mm. you know, engaging with the customer rather than the tenant, the incentivization may need to may need to change for, for people to be able to do that. Yeah, but I think also that switch to more space as a service, as you say, is um, it's also more encouraging for creating mm-hmm. communities and creating places. Because I, I think it's, it's brought another layer to being a good investor. I mean, sustainability was only just starting to come in as a topic in the run-up to the crisis. And that survived the crisis because it was a way to add value. And now we see well-being and health, health, and, you know, and health coming into the equation as well. So I think the industry is more matured about what makes a good investment. So, you know, trying to just capture it for a few years, kind of take the take the kind of profit, the return, and move on has changed. You know, you see institutional investors who maybe were doing funds, doing much bigger schemes, much more long-term schemes, trying to partner and make sure that they're adding value that way. Yeah, how they get paid is a, probably another, <laughs> another, another thing. Yeah, it's difficult. I think fees for fund managers have been, really been challenged since the crisis um, because, you know, they, um, investors want more control, and therefore, if they're having more control and working with fund managers, they want to pay less money right. to, to do that. So there was a period after the crisis where fund managers were really broking on behalf of Asian investors, you know, with the view that they were trying to capture the, this money long term. So it's been a very difficult period for fund managers, I think. So it sounds like you're saying we've, we've learned some lessons, but some, some are just evolving as, as life goes on. We're seeing a bit more debt in the market at the moment, I think, you know, and that's coming through in a different way. One good thing about the crisis was that as an industry, we look for debt in different sources now. CMBS CMBS has not really come back, which I think is a shame because generally as a concept, it's sound, but the conduit lending was probably the problem. But now we're seeing a lot more, we're seeing traditional bank debt, which obviously was challenging after the crisis, but maybe it's coming back more now. But we're seeing a lot more private debt so in a lot more alternative alternative lending, we're calling it for development and stuff. So it's healthier that there's a range of debt. But again, if you look at those debt funds, they're funds. 
you know they're doing the same thing but with debt so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out so that maybe is a you know one of the rhymes that we see yeah but the the number of lenders is extraordinary compared to what it used to be and the diversity of the money they are putting in as as lenders yeah and i think that's healthy i but my understanding is that just at the crisis 50 percent of the loans in the uk were held by four banks right so i think that's a positive thing other than lessons, what, what, what are kind of legacy issues from, from this period which still overhang us? The anniversary of Lehman is 10 years next on September 15th. And so it's an interesting time maybe to think about, you know, why did I take so long to write this book in a way? But, you know, if you've come into the industry when you were sort of 13, 14... And, you know, that's when Lehman happened, maybe. You're just coming into the industry now. You probably hadn't even thought about coming into property. Yeah, right. Yet you're still co- now you're coming into an industry that is still defined mm. by the 2008 crash. And I think because, obviously, um, the, the lack of um, debt in the market, you know, the government's pumped in quantitative easing. They put more money into the system. So, actually, it's been a really good time for property recently. We're looking in much better value compared to bonds but that quantitative easing is going to disappear slowly at some point, hopefully slowly. So we're still looking at an industry that has to find its feet in a world that is not kind of artificially being helped. You know, the, the debt helped us in the, in the run-up to the crisis. Now it's the quantitative easing that's making us look attractive. So as that draws away, it'd be interesting to see what the legacy is, how the industry is going to evolve and equip itself to a world where maybe bonds again are more attractive and some money might move out of the industry. Uh, someone with your perspective who, who's within the industry but slightly looking at it with an objective perspective. 08 must have been a pretty interesting time or exciting time to have been a, uh, a journalist or with a journalist's uh, background. Yes, it was. It was um, actually for a journalist. I was, I was just coming, I was out of journalism then but I still always have it in your blood, I think. It was getting boring to write about how everything was so good all the time, I'll be honest with you. And I mean, when things changed, they were tough stories to write. They were tough stories for people to kind of follow up. But it was, it was important to have that information at the time. I worked at InRev during those times, and we've never had a bigger need for people who wanted to meet and get together and talk to each other. So the importance of information and, and conversation during that period was, was heightened. So I think the journalists did a good job in capturing that and you know, I relied on Euro property and other sources through that. And they, you know, it was, it was, they were kind of depressing days, I think. Yeah. So when, when is your book out and how can we, uh, how can we get our hands on it? That's out on the 24th of September. It's on Amazon at the moment. So you can look up high rise and fall or my name and it comes up. We've checked both. Yeah, you can pre-order now. So, and at the moment, it's available in hardback and paperback, but the ebook will be out soon as well. So, I'm hoping it will be a, a help to students and young professionals coming in the industry to understand where the industries come from. I think we really focus a lot on the crash and the time after the crash, and actually, that those periods before the crash were very important of the origin of the industry we have today. So. You know, alongside their textbooks and their academic books, I hope to provide something more readable. But I think for those who lived the, lived the story as well, I hope they will find it interesting to read as well. Uh, well, I shall certainly be checking out. I always think it's just really interesting if you're working at uh, a long-established firm, just just understanding where it's where it's come from and you know what your what your bosses have been up to and how it's all got to where it is today. 
So other than your, your writing, you've also committed a lot of time recently to Women Talk Real Estate. Please can you explain to us what it is and, and what you're aiming to achieve? Women Talk Real Estate is a non-profit initiative. We, um, my friend and colleague Victoria and I set it up about 18 months ago because we realized that in our work we'd been in and around different events and we were not still not seeing all our female experts on stage. And there started to be more of a kind of interest in why is there only all male panels, where are all the female experts? And so when we started to try and look to understand this, we realized how important visibility was in terms of the gender diversity argument and getting better gender diversity representation. Because if, you know, the stages are very much our public showcase for the industry, we're a very social industry, there must be like two or three events every day that you could go to if you wanted to. So it's a really important kind of, part of of our everyday work and so until we while we're not seeing female experts on stage we're really underestimating the contribution they make and as an individual female if you go on stage you're in the program you're seen it's an icebreaker for people to talk to you when you come off stage it can help your your business and your profile and then if we're all doing that collectively as women being more more visible on stage then it's helping kind of challenge any stereotypes about what we do in the industry and also um, provide more role models. One of the things I love about what you're doing is is the simplicity of the focus. Because I think when when you get into uh, gender diversity arguments, Mm -hmm. things like gender pay gap and board representation can be quite crude tools, can actually sometimes blur the line of argument. But I was pretty shocked, actually, that your research shows that just 14% of speaking opportunities at real estate events across Europe in 2016 were taken up by women. Yeah, and that's 14%, and some of those are the same women speaking right. several times. Because, you know, we have a you know a small group of very you know excellent women who are representing us quite often, and if we took them out, that, I'm afraid, might drop. So essentially at the heart of what we do is um, a database of female professionals who are keen to be involved in industry events, keen to be speakers. And what we do is we have profiles on them, so you can think about it as almost an, a LinkedIn-type network, and then event organizers can sign up to be part of this and they can go and when they need a female expert, they can search by category, by expertise, by company type, by region. So they can easily find and contact women through the database to be part of their event and invite them to be part of their events. Uh, and I should say that, yeah, Susan, Susan Freeman in our, our last episode is exactly how, uh, how she came on the podcast. Yeah. So. Uh... Yeah, it's a great way to get the invitations out there. Um, We now have 521 women in the database, which is amazing. We thought we would get 100 in the first year, and we've ended up with kind of almost 500, over 500. And we've had 175 invitations issued through the database, So, and that's to 97 different women. So what we're really proud of is that we're increasing the number of women who are getting invited to speak, but also the range of women. So we're we're giving a break to a few of those women who are asked all the time, and I think they're very happy to to share out the workload as well. And and is this um, open for all women in the industry to... to apply to your database or are there criteria for getting involved there is a there is a criteria really that's more kind of women who are at sort of mid to senior levels in the industry and that's that's really because what because of um what event organizers are looking yeah. for in terms of the type of speakers they require and and for the younger people for whom it, it may not be appropriate now but something that they might be keen to do in the future what what would you recommend as steps that they can take to start building towards 
having that experience. There's ways to get out there already. I think visibility is not just about being on stage. It's about kind of meeting people, building your networks. So we encourage women, you know, we, we, as you said, we're slightly different. We're quite practical about getting kind of women on stage as a solution to improve gender diversity, but we're really supportive of all the networking organizations. So, you know, young women should go and young men should all go out and kind of meet people at different events, challenge themselves to go to different things and meet a few people, look into many of the very good organizations that are doing things for younger professionals, such as ULI, InRev. If you're just out of college, then you should definitely look at Creation, which is there for um, those who have just graduated as well as those who are before RICS yeah. uh, qualification levels. So definitely just, you know, put your hand up for things, kind of try and... And also look at our training courses. We're definitely keen to make sure that women who are rising stars and starting to be towards that mid-level are comfortable being on stage. And I think it's the same, you know, we just feel like if we can harness more of the females that we have to be on stage, all the better. So we do um, training around becoming a better panellist. And we're just starting to do training for moderating as well because we think that's a role women can play. So you can find out about those on our on our website. Uh, and is the best way to get in touch with you just via the website or, or um, through yes, you? Yes, womentalkrealestate.org should be easy to find. We're on Twitter as well. So you should be able to kind of find us, yeah. Excellent. Um, okay, so we're now on to my, uh, my favourite two questions for the last ones, which are, first of all, your favourite building. Yeah, I'm going to choose the London Aquatic Centre, um, which is on the um, Queen Elizabeth Olympic site. So it was the uh, park. It oh, was right, a, okay, yeah. It was the London Aquatic Centre, so it was the pool used for the 2012 Olympics. So the Pool of Champions, as it's often known as. It's a beautiful Sahar uh, Hadid building. It's very sculptural, very fluid, very beautiful from the outside. And it really was a, a wonderful place, a wonderful venue for the Olympics. You know, we saw, it's where Michael Phelps became the most um, decorated Olympic champion there is. A, a pool of non-British champions, which I think say. our Paralympians did really oh, well. Right, Ellie Simmons yeah, did really enough. well, Ollie Hind. Yeah, but it was, you know, it was one of the most successful venues, I think, in terms of the overall yeah, hosting no, for building. London. It's amazing. Good choice. So, um, final question, which is... The innovation or technology which you've come across in your line of work, which most excites you in terms of its potential to shape the future of the built environment? One, well, one is actually just a point about, I was at ULI conference I was moderating a while back and there was um, a wonderful kind of um, experiment about giving older people access to technology in their homes. So it just allowed them to see who was at the door. They were using the, the desk assistants, do they call it? You know, the Google-type yeah, yeah. things, you know, to help them turn on lights and turn off lights and do simple tasks. And the thing spoke to them. They actually liked the idea that it spoke to. So I just wanted to make the point that I think it's really important that as we build the environment that we kind of make it inclusive that we use technology in an inclusive way for for different people that we don't just think it's for younger people you know that was sort of you know a sort of a, a pilot scheme you think oh my god why is that not happening everywhere already particularly if you're looking at kind of residential for for later living uh, the other thing is i just thought of a while back is do you know um, what three words have no. you heard of that no so some, some very smart people have broken the world up into three meter by three meter oh, yeah, this is the um, codes. And each three meter by three meter space has um, a location name that is three random words. So I, I was told about it by a friend um, a few weeks ago, and I feel like I'm holding one end of a phone and there's no one at the other end at the moment. I've got the app on my phone, but no one else uses it. 
And I think it's, I'm, I'm not quite sure how it does for the built environment yet, but certainly, you know, if you want, if you have a, a building that's difficult to access, you can just say, well, my entrance is in this three words, this block, right. and it helps people. And it has wider, you know, great humanitarian things that you can find people who need to, you need to drop food into kind of difficult areas for people in Africa or something or places like that. You can enable it to do it more accurately. So I just think the mapping of the world in a really simple way is could be quite an interesting one for geographers and other people who, who use those types of things in their built environment work. But uh, apparently one of the amazing things about that is also that we, we just take having things like a postcode for granted, whereas exactly. in Africa it's... Uh, other places it's uh, it's far more of a challenge all right well i, I shall download it be yes another app on my phone which i probably never use but um it's there not uh, being used at the moment but i feel like i'm going to be an early adopter I, when, I could, it, when, I could I, use when it. it's ready exactly um well look, best of luck with the book launch can Thank we you. can we pre-order it now or you can pre-order it now pre-order that. and uh if you have a chance check out um estate.org. yes perfect okay. thank you very much andrew thank you very much Most of us spend the majority of our time looking to the future. But sometimes it's good to look back at the past and understand how it is that we've got to where we are now. Even if it's not possible to predict the future from looking at the past, there's plenty to learn and it can easily change our perspective from current issues. Andrew's experience gives her a fairly unique perspective on the growth of a massive industry in its nascency and I look forward to reading all about it. I thought it's interesting that Andrea highlights the structure of funds and therefore their investment motivation as being a significant influencing factor on how our built environment has evolved. This is a topic which I think is growing in relevance and which we will return to in the near future. Please do check out the Women Talk Real Estate website and get involved if you can. There's links to that and plenty more as ever in our show notes, which you can find at www.buildingourfuture.net. Thank you for listening and please do join me soon.